Do you like to learn about random wild stuff? You know, the things you didn't think you needed to know about, then realize you should? Then welcome to Nothing Off Limits, the podcast that gives you one place to go for something different. Impress your next party guest with your unusual body of knowledge. And if you dig the show, get more information at ladyfoxentertainment.com and subscribe, rate, or review. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Nothing Off Limits. Today, we're going to talk about things like oikophobia. If you don't know what that is yet, you're going to find out today, as well as America's culture today and how you can draw parallels between that and ancient Greek and Roman culture. Interesting stuff. We're going to be getting all kinds of great information from our guest, Benedict Beckelt. He is an author and philosopher, and he not only has a great name, but he also has a great education. Check this out. His PhD is in philosophy and classics from the University of Heidelberg, Germany, and he later taught those subjects while working as a professor at the American University of Paris. His most recent book is Art and Aesthetics, a Promenade ab Homina, featuring essays that examine, via a philosophical prism, modern art and artists, architecture, and aesthetic education. His forthcoming works are Kalahari Singing, a memoir about his 2012 experience as a volunteer teacher in Namibia, which he's going to talk about a little bit today, as well as The Hatred of Home, a brief analysis of Western oikophobia. He's published other books and articles on philosophical and sociocultural issues. He's appeared on radio and TV as an expert analyst. And in addition to all of his writing, Dr. Beckelt, who resides in New York City, by the way, is a noted expert in ancient Greek and Roman culture and European culture. He's fluent in seven languages, he's a fitness enthusiast, and he plays the violin, and these are just some of the reasons why he scares the shit out of me. His website is benedictbeckeld.com. I'm going to put all of the links in the show notes for you. Welcome, Benedict. Thank you very much for having me. You do scare me a little bit because you're just so highly educated. I'm like, oh man, I don't even know if I can carry a conversation with this guy. I'm sure you can. (laughs) I question my own education every day. Oh, do you? Do you just play the violin when your questions and doubt come up? Yeah, basically to soothe my spirit and sort of uh, recharge and uh, and uh, when I'm back at square one. So I love it. Well, let's dive in. I always open these shows by asking the guests to share their journey. How did you get to where you are being an author, a philosopher and all these great things that you do? Um, yeah, I um, grew up um, in a home full of books, and I think probably it was my mother who um, taught me the love of books very early on, and so that path um, was clear pretty early on. Um, I um, So I grew up in Sweden, and um, but yeah, started. Uh, my mother taught me to read at an early age, and uh, uh, and I was always a bibliophile, and I picked up the pen quickly, and I was always sort of rather pensive, I think, or so I'm told anyway, as a child, mm-hmm. and uh, slightly melancholic, so I think... Uh, the philosopher's path was uh, was the obvious one almost from ah. the start. Well, I'm surprised you didn't become a poet. Yeah, well, actually, I did become a poet as well, a little bit on the side. But uh, I don't talk about the poetry quite as much since it's so much more subjective. But uh, I have written a little bit of poetry, which uh, uh, a fragment here and there that's been published. But uh, philosophy is the main thing. Yeah, That's exciting, though. So I want to learn more about your experience in Namibia. What happened there? Yeah, so that was after I had uh, finished graduate school. I uh, had just gotten my PhD, um, but I, I and I was about to become a professor. Or the following year, I was um, having uh, an offer for the, um, as you mentioned, the American University of Paris. But I had some time in between, and so I decided to do something useful with that time rather than 
uh, rot away in an office or something like that. Or so, just go uh, on an island and drink some cocktails. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> which would have been a lot more expensive. So, um, <laughs> and one doesn't enrich oneself through graduate school, exactly. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, so I decided to be of use to somebody, uh, to other people, if possible. And so I volunteered to be a teacher in uh, in a small um, uh, village with a Herero tribe in the Kalahari Desert. And yeah. uh, what were you and, teaching? Uh, English mainly, okay. and. Um, uh, also, uh, basic computer skills and just basic stuff like a- AIDS and HIV awareness, uh, which is obviously a real problem over there, yeah. like in a lot of African countries. Absolutely. So, um, so was, things like that, but mainly English. Yeah. What was the biggest takeaway that that you got out of that experience? Um, the um, well, a clash of cultures, which is a little bit actually also what the um, what both of my two forthcoming books are about um, that you mentioned in the introduction, um, but. Um, the, what I took away, um, I think, was just the uh, beauty uh, of the, um, I mean, the uh, the inner beauty of the people that I taught, the students. I was teaching in a junior secondary school, and the the, uh, the children reached an age from about 12 to, um, to about 20, um, and uh, they were some of the most amazing people I've ever met. Uh, they were incredibly inspiring and so much more disciplined and kind and respectful mm. than in many instances anyway western children would be right um but unfortunately there was also a lot of um, um a lot of behavior from the part of the tribe um as a whole which was very disturbing and uh which it's in, uh, politically incorrect to talk about and that's a little bit what what my memoir kalahari singing is about a lot of um a sort of a culture of uh, of, uh, of rape and beatings and things like that of, of, wow. the, of the children. And so we talk about a rape culture here in, in the United States and on university campuses here in the U.S., but that's yeah. it's really nothing. That's uh, uh, If you want to see a real rape culture, you should, uh, you should go to... Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, because at least here, if, if something happens, most people will condemn uh, such a thing, and there's an infrastructure and a police and so yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. So them can go, whereas over there... Um, people get away with it. Yeah, the perpetrator will be congratulated, and if the victim goes to the police, um, the police will just ignore it or, or maybe even rape uh, again. So, it's, Well, you uh, know, after that experience, then you do need that cocktail yeah. on the beach. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and writing, the, writing the book was definitely a cathartic experience for me. It was yeah. something I sort of needed to get out and talk about. So. Wow. So then you turn around and you come back from Namibia, you write this memoir, and then how do you come out of that unscathed? Um, well, it's uh, obviously something I think about every day. I mean, for me, it's, uh, you know, and nobody tried to rape me. So, I mean, I, I can certainly, uh, I, it would almost be in poor taste to consider myself a sort of victim of that process. I mean, I was free to leave, as indeed I did eventually, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the children who, who were there and still are. Um, but um, but I tried to keep in contact with those children as much as possible, um, which is increasingly possible since the Internet is making inroads over there and everything. That's wonderful. So, that's wonderful. Yeah, so, yeah, well, good on you. Each other's lives, lives a little bit, yeah. Yeah, good on you. So I want to move into the subject of oikophobia, because that is something that you and I discussed offline that we would bring up today. And that I'm sure a lot of people are like, what is that? What is oikophobia? And I did the same thing. So before we kind of dive into like deeper aspects of it, can you just give us a general definition of what it is? Yeah, oikophobia is uh, very basically the opposite of xenophobia. So xenophobia being uh, fear or hatred of the stranger or the foreigner. Oikophobia from Greek oikos, meaning uh, home or house, is a fear or a hatred of your own, not of the foreigner, but of your own civilization, of your own community. 
And so it's something that's especially common in young people uh, nowadays and, and even intellectuals, uh, people who sort of have this knee-jerk reaction that whatever goes wrong, it's probably the fault of the West or the fault of America. Or <laughs> so that's sort of an orthophobia in a nutshell. So do you think then Americans hate themselves or the culture as a whole kind of breathes that idea of hating on itself? Um, no, I don't think so, because I mean... Um, because I think rather that um, oikophobia, and this is something that I talk about in the book um, that you mentioned, it's something that essentially happens to many different cultures um, as they start to decline. Mm -hmm. And then they start to sort of hate themselves early on in a culture when it's sort of rising and spreading its wings, as it were. Mm -hmm. It's much, much more rare that you find this sort of mass self-hatred yeah. that you find today. And so... Uh, so I do you find it then in just like, you know, periods of rebellion, like, for instance, the 60s, or yeah. I don't know, when people freaked out about disco being dead? <laughs> I mean, right. is nice. that the kind of thing you're talking about? A little bit, yeah. Um, disco being dead, I'm not so sure about, but uh, <laughs> that would go beyond the, uh, beyond the uh, field of my expertise, I'm afraid. I, uh, I dance as little as possible. Uh, but, well, um, we'll have to change that, Benedict. Yeah. <laughs> but the... Um, yeah, certainly the 60s and, I mean, all the protests and everything. And, of course, that's not to say that anything, any critique of America or of the West is, is incorrect simply because you might label it as orcophobia. There could certainly be legitimate criticisms. Mm -hmm. uh, but orcophobia is the sort of attitude that when you sort of start to become hostile almost automatically to your own civilization, um, and it's often a sort of... Um, uh, motor of vanity, if you will. It's a way by which the oikophobe sort of raises, sort of raises him or herself above everybody else. So, give us another example, because I think, like, I want to make it more clear for the people listening of something that would just make total sense to them from maybe recent history, where they're like, okay, that makes sense. Right. So, um, so something like, for example, um, uh, and this was actually a, a, an example where the word oikophobia itself came up. It was a few years ago after the. Um, uh, the after 9-11, the destruction of the World Trade Center mm -hmm. in New York, um, there was, um, you know, for a while there was a plan to build a mosque a couple of blocks away or down the street from there, and uh, there were protests about that because uh, the people, or some people, said that it was inappropriate to build a mosque in a place where there had been a an attack by, uh, by Muslim fanatics. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, regardless of who was right or wrong in that debate, um, which is, I think, probably a different question, um, this sort of knee-jerk reaction that anybody who is, who might think that that's appropriate is an intolerant American and, oh, these Americans are so intolerant and Islamophobic and xenophobic and so on, uh, that could be an expression of orcophobia. Okay. Uh, so rather than wanting to have a discussion on the merits, this sort of immediate divi division of the two different opinions into camps, mm -hmm. intolerant and sort of parochial Americans who don't get it and who are not cosmopolitan, um, that would be or probably uh, yeah. qualifies an orcophobic uh, And it's currently yeah. going on with the Absolutely. whole Trump thing. Yes. So sure. everybody's super divided over that. I yep. mean, I know of people who lost friendships over this. Yes. You know, over this yeah. election. So, yeah. you know, I, is that's a good example too, right? Oh, yeah. It's a great example. And it's probably it's no reason to stay away from Facebook, actually. Um, <laughs> it's uh, I mean, that the fact that we have become so divided and that's also a sign. I mean, division is nothing new. I mean, we, we've been divided before, obviously, civil war, most obvious example. Um, but usually in the in the early part of a culture, there's going to be a sort of almost tribal cohesion. 
Mm -hmm. uh, when the community is also smaller, but the bigger a community gets, and obviously the American community is a very large one, uh, the more room there, uh, the more room there is for different sort of subgroups. Yeah, and for a kind of a return to tribalism on a smaller scale. That's interesting. And so that's that's kind of uh, where we are right yeah, now. Yeah, and you talk about this a little bit in one of your blogs when I went to your website about like some prejudices, you know, and that's like another term I guess we could put on this of people right. going against each other. So you mentioned men with wealth and power. And, yes. you know, I had another guest on this podcast, uh, Cindy Gallup, and she's very much an advocate. She's very feminist and an mm. advocate for women in business, particularly the advertising industry. And so there's a, she does a lot of posts surrounding that. And so I see that often in my feed um, from other people, too. And yeah. so can we talk a little bit about that particular one and what you've seen develop? I mean, living in New York City, you must see that a lot. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, that was actually something I wrote about. I mean, speaking of the blog, this or this, um, and which is related to what you just mentioned uh, in in business, the uh, statue "Fearless Girl," which is uh, which is now facing uh, the the more the older statue "Charging Bull," and is supposed to be a sort of feminist symbol and everything. Um, Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, um, I mean, I think essentially that. Um, uh, I think supporting women in business is one thing, I, but that statue was sort of meant to, I think, um, play off the uh, play off the prejudices of millennials a little bit, um, since it's a girl and not a woman. A woman, you might say, has the experience and the wisdom uh, to face the patriarchy or whatever you might call it, and to actually make a difference. Whereas a girl um, doesn't have that yet, or a child doesn't have that yet. Mm -hmm. But they think um, they do. <laughs> yeah, they think they do exactly, and that's and that's the sort of the self uh, the self righteousness yeah. of uh, a little bit of the millennial generation. Yeah. For those of you out there listening right now who have no idea what the hell we're talking about, go to Benedict's blog, and you can see the picture of this statue, so you know you can have a reference, a frame of reference for this. But it's a the fearless girl statue, and they put it right next to what the bull. Yeah, a charging bull, it's called. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the bull is. It came after the um, the crash in the, in the late '80s, and it was sort of meant to be a symbol of American revival and American financial power, and so mm -hmm. on. Who put this fearless girl statue in there? Uh, that was actually State Street, a company, um, which is a little ironic. It's actually sort of a, a corporate stunt, um, but <laughs> um, but they they're the ones who sponsored it. By uh, the artist is Kristen Bisbal, is her name, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and that was put up there and sort of. Uh, meant she's fa the statue is facing charging bull, so it sort of uh, creates a new dynamic with both works of mm -hmm, art. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your your opinions on that? Do you think that it's it's amusing? Do you think that it's um, something that needs to really be examined further? Well, I, the thing is, I don't uh, I I don't have a lot of sympathy for the uh, most modern and uh, I guess you might say third wave feminism uh, feminist movement uh, I think feminism in so far as it simply defines itself as striving for equality between men and women mm -hmm. is completely unobjectionable in fact I think it's probably too generous because I think most women are probably at least marginally smarter than most men I would say uh, they're still on paid my... less though <laughs> <laughs> well um, that's also yeah well that's probably also because I think well that probably depends on the occupation but it's also because of um, uh, you know, different different occupational choices that that uh, men and women ma make. Um, it might be true in some areas, but it you know it doesn't happen that a young man and a young woman go into McDonald's and they both get hired with the same position and they just decide, well, since you're a woman, we'll give you eighty cents on the dollar. That doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a bit of a myth. I mean, um, uh, but. but that's another debate. We can bring you back to talk about that one. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. But um, but so but I think that. Um, 
feminism today um, doesn't just strive for equality, even though that's what they claim they do. Um, they seek not, and they seek to achieve this equality not only by denigrating men, but also by denigrating those women who make choices that they themselves don't approve of. Aha. That's, so that's another actually, divide. Yeah, exactly. So I actually think that the sort of first wave feminism had this excellent, these amazing women whose attitude it was that, well, whatever men can do, we can do just as well, if not better. Mm -hmm. And they set out to prove it. If a woman wants to fly across the Atlantic, she can do that. Whatever she wants to do, she can do. Whereas today, feminism is more like, well, she has to do this thing. And if she does choose that, in fact, she does want to simply stay at home and raise children, then she's not a real woman and she's a traitor and so on. And so I think that, <laughs> I think, I think um, modern day feminism has become a bit too misogynist, actually, mm -hmm. uh, ironically speaking. That's yeah. interesting. I'm curious as to how you draw parallels, because you are an expert in ancient Greek and Roman cultures, on what's going on in America today. And I want to focus on America, so sorry in advance, unless you want to weave in some stuff about the UK and Europe, which is fine with me, but you know, we had spoken about kind of focusing on America and the parallels with history. So dive into that a little bit for us, and, and how do you see those similarities? Yeah, I'd be. No, I, America is my main um, object of interest as well, so that's fine. Um, well, the uh, the parallel is essentially, if you look at ancient Greece and ancient Rome, you're going to see that we are in about the same stage of development that those two civilizations were um, toward in their declining phase. And so, essentially, once uh, a, um, a culture starts hating itself, once it has sort of started to abandon its own religion and its own traditions. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I don't say that to peddle religion, by the way. Actually, I don't practice any religion at all. I don't mm -hmm. even believe in God. But even as a non-believer, one can still one can still say objectively that a civilization is able to project more outward power when it believes in its own God or gods mm -hmm. and it's in its own traditions. Uh, but the more successful the tr uh, culture is, and the more rich, uh, the, uh, the more uh, wealth and, and power um, it obtains, and the more leisure it obtains, uh, the less those traditions are going to matter to the individual. But you said it's then leading to decline, which sounds kind of scary. Yeah, because, uh, because once uh, that leisure has been achieved, there is less of a need and less of a felt desire for the individual to sacrifice himself for the culture. Early on in a culture, the, ex uh, the existence of, uh, of uh, everyday existence is more pre precarious and there are more external enemies and so on. And so the whole idea of just simply withdrawing and living a life of leisure and wealth isn't really an option. Everybody has to sort of bandy together and defend mm -hmm. their, their community. Mm -hmm. um, but once, that, once they have done so successfully and the external enemies have been eliminated, that's when people sort of withdraw into their own little individual groups and sort of just enjoy the fruits of success. And that's when tradition starts to matter less. And that's when a uh, desire to sacrifice yourself on the part of your community mm. uh, kind of disappears. Mm -hmm. And so that happened in Greece, that happened in Rome, and it's happening to us. And then tell us what that looks like then for us. What should we expect? Yeah, uh, that's where we are a little luckier than either Greece or Rome, um, because um, Greece um, was, uh, uh, or if we're going to talk about Athens, Greece wasn't a unified, uh, wasn't a unified state, but the city-state of Athens was surrounded by enemies, and so once they entered their decline, uh, it was easy for the enemies to overrun Athens. Same thing with Rome. Mm -hmm. uh, Rome was a huge empire, but outside of the borders of that empire in, in the East and the Middle East and in Northern Europe, there were barbarian tribes. And so once Rome had that decline, 
it was fairly easy for those uh, tribes to overrun the empire. Now, we're a little luckier because we're geographically isolated. Mm -hmm. and, and because the country to our north, Canada, is a, is a perfectly benevolent uh, and, uh, and, and pretty nice country. Yeah, they're so, neutral. They're always yeah, neutral. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're staying out of it, people. We're exactly. just here. <laughs> so, uh, so what's going to happen to us is, is we're prob I'm sure we're not going to be invaded or anything like that, um, as opposed to Greece and Rome. What will happen instead is that we're simply not going to be able to project outward power in the same way that we've been able to in the past. Really? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people think, you know, America's like the number one power. You know, like we kind of drive what's going on everywhere. So you think that's going to change? Where's it going to go? Where's the power going to be shifted toward? It's going to shift into a more a multipolar world uh, because there's no immediate obvious success. I mean, the most obvious successor would be China. But China doesn't have probably neither of these strengths, certainly not at this point, nor the ambition to take over that role uh, that the United States took over from the British Empire of mm -hmm. basically being the world's policeman, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that 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 uh, end of you know sort of guarding the trade lanes and everything yeah. like that. Yeah. China doesn't really have that ambition, so it's going to become more multipolar. Mm. So America is still going to have power, but it's not going to be the sort of thing where, like it was in the fifties, if the United States wanted to change the government of Iran, they could just send in send in a few CIA operatives, and and the government was changed basically. Right. It's not going. It's not going to be like that anymore. Uh, and so uh, it's going to be much more uh, a question of uh, of respecting other uh, power centers. Oh, yeah. Hopefully that happens. Is, <laughs> so that's that's the solution that we need to just make friends with everybody. Um, I don't really think there is a solution. I mean, um, because I think this follows a historical trajectory that's pretty um, unavoidable. Um, and so um, it's, it's simply, uh, it's more a question, not so much of solving it, but of simply accepting it, whether one is for or against such a development. Mm -hmm. um, that's simply the direction. Well, in see, which you're lucky because if you decide, you could just go back to Sweden. <laughs> right. Yes. No, That's not fair. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, Sweden isn't always all cracked up to be. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I've never been beautiful there. Nature. So. Oh. Yeah, beautiful nature. Yeah. Uh, nature. Nice yeah. people. But mm -hmm. uh, I like the variety of a of a country like uh, America, where uh, yeah. there is something for everyone. Yeah. New York is pretty rad. I gotta say. Yeah. New York is fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I've never it. been to L.A. In fairness. So. Oh yeah. Well, you gotta come out to L.A. too, so you can get the, uh, you know, the other side of things. Yeah, there no. are some New Yorkers who hate L.A. and there are some New Yorkers who are like totally bi-coastal and they come here when it's freezing <laughs> in New York. <laughs> well, as a Swede, I don't mind the cold, of course, but uh, but I'd be go. definitely curious to see uh, to see the other side. Yeah. Any other ideas around what's going on with the the American culture or or Europe in relation to history that is coming up in your book? Um, yeah, I mean the other sort of case studies that I have in the book are um, uh, France and uh, Great Britain. Uh, after, in addition to uh, ancient Rome and ancient Greece, uh, but they went through through sort of the same thing. We can sort of see, actually, if we want to see what's going to happen to us, we can look more at something like Britain and France, mm -hmm. uh, Roman and Athens. They were both overrun by enemies, uh, whereas Britain and France they went through the same orthophobic process, but they still exist, but they don't have the kind of uh, outward uh, power that they used to have. Wow. And so the French Empire, of course, actually the French were overrun by the Germans on, on several occasions um, but, and were allowed to continue to live, basically. Um, but, um, 
but Britain was a little more geographically isolated and, and was never invaded, but they don't have anything near the kind of power they used to have. So that's some sort of where we're going to yeah. head. Except in the media. Like, everybody's always yes. still enthralled with the queen and the oh, yeah. princess and all that. Yeah, goodness knows why. But yeah, no, it's... Uh, <laughs> But I yeah, saw, yeah. just as an a total aside, I saw something on Twitter of like Kate making like bad faces at her babies, like 15 bad photos of Kate, you know, and I was like, yeah. what? And that's probably the first picture. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. That's well, the- it is it is a fairly adorable family. I'll probably yeah. It, but yeah, <laughs> fairly. Yes. You're so funny. So when are your books coming out? Uh, well, the um, uh, Orcophobia book is probably going to come out next year. Um, it's... Um, just was sent out uh, by my agent to publishers. Uh, Kalahari Singing is a little more of a wild card. Um, I can't say for sure. Um, and that's probably, well, I can't say either that for sure, but it may also have something to do with the political baggage that comes with it because of the political world, yeah. the political correct world in which we live, essentially. Um, you know, if you say anything negative about an African tribe, there's always someone who's going to call you a racist, right. even though I also say many positive things. But right. know, the fact that well, I'm sort of blindly praising the culture is, is a problem to some people. So You're just saying it like it is. You're telling it like it is. Yeah. This is what's going on, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the idea in a way. Well, I mean, see, and and I, like, I like that you're coming on nothing off limits because that's the mission of this show is to cover things that people would prefer to brush under the rug. Exactly. And, so. and there's a reason why philosophers have a history of being executed, because, uh, because their job is supposed to tell the truth. Yeah. Well, yeah. did you know that when you were getting into the profession? No, that was, uh, I found that out later to my dismay. <laughs> You're like, oh, darn. Yeah, yeah. but I oh, figured well. it was a price worth paying. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're putting yourself in some situations in Namibia and such. Yep. So what's, what's the most passionate thing for you right now? Um, you've, you've written these books and they're just kind of in limbo land right now until you get them published and released and distributed. So, so what are you working on right now? I'm actually uh, working on uh, finishing the Orcophobia book because usually those things are sold uh, before they're finished. Um, Kalahari Singh, that's all finished. Uh, that's uh, pretty much old history. Um, but um, the uh, the idea, it's my agent is essentially saying the idea of the book. I've already written about half of the manuscript, but the or actually a little more than that. But the uh, finishing the rest of that now, and um, and that's probably uh, my biggest passion right now. Um, do you and, practice uh, all of the languages you know? Yes, I do. Uh, I am, I'm very blessed in having uh, friends and colleagues in, in uh, all of those countries where those languages are spoken. What are the so, seven? What are the seven languages that you're fluent in? Uh, well, it's uh, Swedish, of course, my, uh, my, uh, the language where I grew up, and then English, uh, French, German, Italian, and then uh, because I lived in those countries. And uh, finally, if we count those, the two ancient languages of ancient Greek and Latin. Wow. So how do you say, my name is Benedict and I'm pretty awesome in Greek, in ancient Greek? Amy <laughs> uh, Benedict, um, or well, actually Benedict, if you translate it literally, would probably be something like a famous in ancient Greek. Kai Amy Hobeltistos. All right. I would try to repeat that if I could. <laughs> What's the word for awesome in, uh, in Swedish? Um... Hmm, awesome is a very American word. Yes, uh, it is. Yeah, uh, probably something like utrolit, uh, like which great. actually literally means uh, incredible, but we'll probably okay. be closest to it. Yeah, yeah, awesome, incredible. I think they fall in the same bucket. Yeah. That is so cool. And I love that you play the violin. Is it nearby? 
Yes, it's actually right here, though it's not perfectly tuned. That's okay. We don't mind. Yeah. Most people who are listening are probably tone deaf anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's... uh, I actually had a practice session uh, earlier today. I love uh, it. But, Will you play uh, a little bit for us? Um, I That would probably be a bit tricky because I would have to set up uh, notes and everything like that and, and find a better space. I'm currently sort of crammed in between a bookcase and the computer. But, uh, yeah, maybe maybe your next show. <laughs> yeah. Or you, why don't you play something like rock and roll through your violin? That would be kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, I have played kind of like sort of jazzy pieces. Um just, um, I mean, when I practice, it's more uh, sort of classical, but uh, just yeah. sometimes myself for fun, I'll do uh, Heck yeah. I'll do something more modern. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and put it through like a distortion pedal. Oh, that's an idea. I played, a, I, played, I played an Irish drinking song the other day, and that was kind of fun, actually. So. <laughs> I love it. Well, I am so pleased that uh, you took time to come on Nothing Off Limits and, and share some of your incredible thoughts with our audience about oikophobia and our culture and all of that. And I will certainly push everyone towards your website, benedictbeckeld.com, everybody. And definitely stay tuned for when his books come out. And um, hopefully we can have you back, Benedict. We'll talk about some other stuff. Yeah, it would be my pleasure. That would be great. All right, thank you very much. Have a great topic you'd like to hear discussed on an upcoming episode of Nothing Off Limits? Email us at ideas at ladyfoxentertainment.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate the show, and go to ladyfoxentertainment.com to sign up for our email list and to check out our resources page. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.